the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, also co-author of Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk, and Obama's enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. We're going to talk about what impact uh, Justice Kavanaugh will have on the Supreme Court, what his appointment will mean. We're also going to talk with the stream's Rachel Alexander. She's going to tell us about a new um, documentary on Google and Facebook and how they're manipulating society. The creepy uh, factor is what this is all about. So we're going to talk with her about that. And we're going to share my conversation with Wayne Grudem in the five o'clock hour, author of Christian Ethics, an introduction to biblical moral reasoning. That is uh, the lineup. Well, today, of course, uh, the headline of the day has been the storm in Florida that has taken, well, the state by storm. And it was a category four at the time it made uh, landfall, which is fairly unusual. Usual, and they're telling us this is one of the strongest storms that has ever um, come uh, on land in this area. Uh, it was downgraded now to a Category 3, but it uh, is continuing to uh, churn, uh, and they're telling it, uh, residents there that it is life-threatening. Uh, Michael, Hurricane Michael, was uh, downgraded earlier today. Uh, though the threat of life-threatening storm surges and catastrophic winds were being told remain as the megastorm churned toward Alabama and Georgia. Hurricane Michael made landfall shortly after 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's about about 11 our time, northwest of Mexico Beach, just outside Panama City. The National Hurricane Center director, Ken Graham, uh, says, since then, the storm has pushed inland over flat Florida's panhandle, rather, and the eye is currently headed toward the extreme uh, southeastern portion of Alabama and southwestern Georgia, uh, according to a, uh, an advisory at about 5 p.m. Eastern time. With the maximum sustained winds of 125 miles an hour, Michael is moving north-northeast at 16 miles per hour. That means the storm is moving at that rate, but the winds it carries with it, 125 miles an hour. On the forecast uh, track, the core of Michael will move uh, across southeastern Alabama and southwestern Georgia through this evening. The 5 o'clock advisory said Michael will then move north, uh, northeastward across the southwestern um, United States through Thursday and then move off the mid-Atlantic coast away from the United States late on Thursday night and Friday. Um, more than 375,000 people up and uh, down the Gulf Coast were warned to evacuate and the hurricane, its leading edge, sent storm surges into neighborhoods as it approached and as it left. As Michael neared, heavy waves pounded the shoreline in the Panama City Beach area, which caused a building uh, under construction to collapse. Um, in nearly uh, nearby, Apa, let's see, it's Apalacola, I believe, uh, the storm surge there sent water pouring into city neighborhoods and covering roadways. The Walton County Sheriff's Office shared a photo on 
on Twitter of a boat getting uh, rocked in the waves and urged extreme caution to residents, warning them not to take any chances during the unforgiving hurricane. Michael is upon us. He wrote, it is time to seek refuge. Once you have sheltered, stay put. That's a quote from uh, Florida Governor Rick Scott tweeting on Wednesday morning. Do not try to leave until the storm has passed. Multiple state and federal resources are staged and ready to respond as soon as it is safe. Well, after the storm made landfall, the governor requested that President Trump issue a major disaster declaration for the state of Florida. The president on Tuesday approved a pre-landfall emergency declaration. The governor also tweeted photos of supplies ready to be distributed to those affected by Hurricane Michael. More than 388,000 accounts in Florida had lost power as a result of the storm, according to a report tweeted by the state's Division of Emergency Management. The governor wrote that utility company personnel was at the ready and restoring power was a top priority. Um, the National Weather Service stressed the present danger of trees during the uh, storm uh, as it makes its way into uh, into Georgia as uh, hashtag Michael moves farther inland into Georgia and areas less familiar with extreme wind. Trees become a clear and present danger, the agency tweeted. Minimize your risk in uh, single story homes by staying in interior rooms away from large trees and overhanging branches. One 57-year-old and her son uh, joined about 1,100 people crammed into a shelter in Panama City, meant to be about half as many or to accommodate half as many. Neither she or her son had any way to communicate because their lone cell phone got wet, quit working, according to the Associated Press. Stories like that, not uncommon. So if you can't communicate with friends or loved ones, don't panic. Um, More than 5,000 evacuees sought shelter in Tallahassee, which is about 25 miles from the coast, but is uh, covering the uh, uh, covered rather by live oak and pine trees that can fall and cause power outages, even in uh, smaller storms. Tyndale Air Force uh, Base, situated on the peninsula just south of Panama City, took a direct hit from Hurricane Michael and sustained extensive damage, according to a Facebook post from the base. No injuries were reported. The home of the 325th Fighter Wing and some 600 military Military families appeared squarely targeted for the worst of the storm's fury, and uh, leaders declared a Hurricane One status, that's Hurricane One abbreviated, um, ordering uh, all but essential personnel out. The base's aircraft, which included F 22 Raptors, were flown hundreds of miles away as a precaution. Forecasters predicted 9 to 14 foot uh, feet of water at Tyndale. The uh, Tyndale, I think, is probably the better way to pronounce it. The evacuation order was. Uh, to continue until further notice. The strength of the Hurricane Michael tore off building roofs, downed trees, power lines, caused significant structural damage, the base said, adding that it was immediately clear what condition the runway uh, was in. Evacuation spanned 22 counties from the Panhandle into the north-central Florida, but civilians don't have to follow orders, and authorities feared that many people ignored the warnings to get out, as they typically do. We told those who stayed to uh, have their life jackets on when the storm comes. Uh, That's a quote from the Franklin County Emergency Management Coordinator speaking to the Panama City uh, News Herald. Meanwhile, the president was briefed on Hurricane Michael as it closed in on Florida, the panhandle, and was warned on the power of the storm as it meets with the Homeland Security Secretary and the Administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Long described storm as a uh, Gulf Coast hurricane of the worst kind, which he said was 
uh, said will be similar to strengths of an EF3 tornado making landfall. The president said he spoke with Scott on Tuesday and says the federal government is coordinating with all the states that could be impacted. Well, after lashing the coast of Florida, rainfall up to uh, 12 inches is possible and may cause flooding, um, flash flooding, in fact, inland. Uh, but unlike Hurricane Florence, Michael will accelerate uh, tonight and Thursday, preventing any long-term flooding from rainfall, according to uh, senior meteorologist Janice Dean. Well, the Carolinas will unfortunately get more rain on top of the flooding damage they had with Hurricane Florence. She went on to say isolated tornadoes are also possible from North Florida to the and the Panhandle through Georgia and South Carolina as the storm continues moving north. The National Weather Service's office uh, on Twitter issued a tornado watch until 2 a.m. Eastern time for areas in both Florida and in Georgia. So keep those folks in your prayers. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll return in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We'll talk about the difference that a Justice Kavanaugh will mean for the Supreme Court. Nikki Haley announced that she was resigning as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. President Trump says he has narrowed down his list of potential successors to five candidates. And in a TV interview on Tuesday, Hillary Clinton said Democrats, uh, Democrats rather, can't be civil with Republicans as GOP lawmakers are increasingly targeted by violent and radical leftists. In an interview with Fox uh, Business, Republican Senate candidate Marsha Blackburn broke her silence on Taylor Swift's political jab against her. And uh, uh, the well, we'll start with start at the beginning. <laughs> Um, President Trump told reporters aboard Air Force One that he has narrowed his list of potential replacements for outgoing United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley to five people after his daughter Ivanka removed herself from consideration for the post earlier in the day. The president said he'll name a successor for Haley in the next few weeks amid widespread speculation. Haley surprised staff and lawmakers alike with her abrupt resignation announcement Tuesday, but the resignation doesn't become effective until the end of the year. Uh, saying it's time to step aside, though she'll stay through the end of the year. She did not uh, give further explanation for her resignation and has not announced her future plans. Speaking alongside Haley in the Oval Office, the president said there are a number of people who would uh, like to be U.S. ambassador to the U.N. So far, the president has revealed only one name that's definitely on his short list. Former Deputy National Security Advisor Dina Powell, who Trump said on Tuesday, is certainly a person I would consider appointing. Powell, who departed the White House in January, has worked as a managing director for Goldman Sachs and served as a senior official in the George W. Bush uh, administration. And Hillary Clinton, in a television interview Tuesday, rejected the idea that Democrats should be civil with Republicans in the age of Donald Trump, embracing a more confrontational and aggressive political approach. You cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for, uh, what you care about, Clinton said, speaking to CNN's Christiane Amanpour. The 2016 Democratic presidential nominee said, that's why I believe if we are fortunate enough to win back the House and or the Senate, that's when civility can start again. It really is a very remarkable statement. This isn't just a man on the street. It's not some kid making a comment offhand. This is a woman of significant influence. Until then, she went on to say the only thing Republicans seem to recognize and respect is strength. Well, Clinton's comments come amid escalating attacks against Republican lawmakers and Trump administration officials by left-wing activists. In fact, uh, Rand Paul expressed a genuine concern uh, about the, the peril of um, events that have taken place after the Kavanaugh confirmation following the bitter, partisan, acrimonious 
battle over Associate uh, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh. Senator uh, Paul warned in an interview on Tuesday that heated political rhetoric has the potential to turn deadly. I fear that there's going to be an assassination, Paul told a Kentucky radio show. I really worry that somebody is going to be killed and that those who are ratcheting up the conversation, they have to realize they bear some responsibility if this escalates. Uh, to violence. So Paul's comments came the same day the former presidential candidate made the uh, the comments. And then um, the former attorney general suggested Michelle Obama said that when they go low, we go. And everyone in the crowd said hi. And he said, no, we push them over or, or something like that. So there's growing concern about not just rank and file Americans making uh, uh, comments that would suggest violence uh, is in order or in civility, but that those at the t- upper echelons one would expect to denounce uh, that kind of violence are also making similar uh, statements. U.S. Representative Marsha Blackburn out of Tennessee, who's running for the Senate in, a, in the volunteer state, responded on Tuesday to Taylor Swift's social media dig against her and the pop star's announcement that she would be voting for Democrats in the midterm elections. Swift slammed Blackburn on Instagram on Sunday, saying that even though she would like to continue voting for women in office, she wouldn't be voting for Blackburn. However, in an interview um, with uh, uh, Connell McShane, Blackburn insisted that she is an advocate for women's causes. Of course, I support women and I want violence to end against women. I've been very active in abuse shelters and child advocacy centers. I've been advocating for women in equal pay since I was 19 years old and making certain that women have the opportunity for maximum pay and have a good record on that. We're getting ready... uh, Uh, We're getting ready the Music Modernization Act that I helped steer through Congress, she said. Um, I'm going to be signing on Thursday by the president, or it's going to be signed. Um, I've been very active in that, and Taylor Swift will benefit by that. I'm not sure if it's actually a response to the, uh, the question, but nonetheless, that was her response. And uh, on this day in 2008, bank bailout, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson announces the government has decided to go forward with the plan to buy a part ownership in a board array of or rather a broad array of American banks in response to the financial meltdown. And on this day in 1973, Vice President Spiro Agnew, uh, accused of accepting bribes, pleads no contest to one count of federal income tax evasion and resigns. And on this day in 1845, the U.S. Naval Academy is established in Annapolis. Maryland. Happy birthday, Academy. There is a growing concern that um, the fight over Kavanaugh proves the Supreme Court has become too powerful. In fact, Kim Holmes points out the stakes are high, very high. The confirmation process for Brett Kavanaugh has uh, been a battle royale. But why should one government official's position be so existentially important? Yes, control of the Supreme Court hangs in the balance. But that raises the question as to why the court itself is so powerful. And is that what was intended? Could it be that the answer to that question tells us something about our increasing inability to govern ourselves as a free people? Let's face it, ever since at least the 1960s and, frankly, even before, we've increasingly allowed the Supreme Court to decide controversial issues we have been unwilling to solve legislatively. From civil rights to abortion to the issue of gay marriage, the high court has ruled on key issues well outside the legislative process. New constitutional rights were created out of whole cloth. We're going to talk in our next segment with Hans von Spakovsky a bit about that and why... Uh, and rather what the Kavanaugh uh, appointment uh, will make uh, to the court, how it's likely to function. Um, I'm not going to get into this thing here. Um, We did hear today that Senate Judiciary Committee chairman accused of... Preventing Garrett um, Merritt Garland from an up or down vote or even hearings, the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Charles Grassley said uh, today that he would not allow a Supreme Court vacancy to be filled in 2020, a position he puts 
Uh, that puts him at odds with Senate, uh, Senate's top Republican on an issue that has influenced partisan tensions for more than two years. Of course, Merritt Garland was um, President Obama's uh, nominee to fill the vacancy left by the very conservative Scalia. He was not given a hearing nor obviously a vote. Well, in an interview with Fox News Channel's Martha McCallum, Grassley uh, was asked whether he believes the Senate should take up a hypothetical Supreme Court nomination during 2020 when President Trump will be up for reelection. If I'm chairman, they won't take it up, says Grassley, whose uh, committee is charged with holding hearings on Supreme Court nominees. No, because I pledge that in 2016 that if the balls in the uh, balls the same as uh, it is now, I, if uh, somebody else is the chairman of the committee, they'll have to decide for themselves. But that's a decision I made a long time ago. In other words, he would do to President Trump what he did and the Republicans did to President Obama by declining to move forward with the Supreme Court nominee uh, on the edge of a uh, of an election. So we'll see what actually happens if, in fact, this hypothetical becomes a real question. So we'll um, we'll find out. By the way, the uh, Kavanaugh clash has fueled fundraising a bonanza in the final midterm stretch for both parties. And again, the uh, face off will continue until Election Day. We'll see who is more enthusiastic as a consequence of those events. Up next, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky on what Kavanaugh's appointment will mean for the Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, even though Justice Kavanaugh often voted... Uh, against what liberals wanted the court to do. He voted with them often enough that they continued to see the federal courts, and in particular the Supreme Court, as their substitute venue for implementing the social policy they couldn't achieve through the democratic process. Well, with Justice Kavanaugh, that substitute venue will likely disappear. That, in turn, could diminish the power of the Supreme Court over the political, social, and cultural affairs of the nation. And that would be a good thing. So says my next guest, Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also co-author of Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk and Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department on what uh, Kavanaugh jurists will mean for the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. Now, if you based your opinion on what's likely to have in, happen next uh, on the hysterical um, uh, predictions of those who oppose Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice, then the republic as we know it is about to end and we only have seconds left. But what you write about in your uh, in your column is what we might actually expect and anticipate out of a Kavanaugh um, court. Well, yeah, it's important to understand uh, and remember that he was replacing Anthony Kennedy. And, and while Kennedy, you know, was correctly referred to as a swing vote on the court, uh, he didn't swing that often. If you look at his record, you'll find that in a majority of cases, uh, he voted with the other conservative uh, justices on the court. Um, he he was a key fifth vote, for example, upholding Second Amendment rights in, in the um, uh, uh, D.C. versus Heller decision. That was the, the first major decision in U.S. history to uphold the Second Amendment. Uh, he consistently voted with the conservatives on First Amendment issues. You may recall uh, he, he wrote the opinion in the Citizens United case, which was a key First Amendment uh, decision that uh, liberals have have unfairly but highly criticized. I mean, they were very angry about it. 
So, so the, in the majority of cases, I don't think you're going to see anything different between Kennedy and, and Kavanaugh. The difference you may see is in a very small number of cases, uh, the times that Kennedy would uh, switch over and go with the liberals was often on what I think I would refer to as politically correct social issues. So, you know, the, the biggest example of that was... Um, him writing the opinion just a couple of years ago, recognizing gay marriage along with the other four liberal justices. So that's where you may see changes. Um, I think, as, I, as you read, uh, Georgia, that, that, that's a good thing because issues like that should be decided by the democratic process, not the court. Well, in fact, at least a partial explanation for the uproar leading to um, his nomination, even before the allegations of sexual misconduct uh, came forward, the utter rejection of him on the court really uh, belies the, the notion that the court is being seen by some, particularly on the left, as a, an instrument to accomplish what they cannot accomplish legislatively. No, that, that's exactly right. This has been going on now for, for decades. Um, uh, progressive liberals, when they can't convince state legislatures to take action, when they can't convince Congress to take action, when they can't convince voters uh, to approve something through the referendum uh, process, uh, they have instead gone to federal courts and convinced judges to implement the policy they want by judicial fiat. Um, and, and unfortunately, there are too many liberal justices that have played into this and gone along with this instead of doing what they're supposed to do, which is not, not create new rights, create new laws, but simply um, apply the, the statutes and provisions of the Constitution. So might we expect then that the legislative branch will be more aggressive in attempting to accomplish what it is charged with doing rather than looking to the court because the expectation is that with a court that seems to be weighted more toward a conservative court, a constructionist court, they're not going to achieve what has been possible in the past? I mean, maybe it's just wishful thinking, but <laughs> might we see that? Uh, I, I think that's wishful thinking. I mean, that that's what ought to happen. But we have seen the um, the fact that the country and Congress uh, is almost evenly split between uh, a Democratic and Republican Party that are very far apart, and they have found it next to impossible to pass legislation on on major issues. Um, and that's one of the reasons that. They deferred to the Supreme Court for years when they really shouldn't have. You write that the Supreme Court was never envisioned by our founders as the final arbiter and decision maker on all affairs, foreign and domestic. It is the court's extension of its uh, of uh, its power into areas where it should not be exercising power that has played a large role in turning the confirmation of its justices into a raucous a political campaign that diminishes the court and damages the pursuit of justice in the federal uh, courts. Let's talk about what the uh, what the framers intended with regard to this third branch of of government and the abdication of uh, Congress's responsibility in uh, undertaking to legislate. Well, in fact, if you look back at everything from uh, James Madison's notes about the Constitutional Convention to the Federalist Papers that were written in an effort to convince the country to uh, uh, approve the Constitution. Uh, it's very clear that the, that the framers, the, the founders, believed that the judicial branch would be the weakest branch, that um, the major functions of the government would be carried out by the executive branch and Congress, the legislative branch, and the judiciary would be a very weak uh, third sister um, in the three branches of government. Uh, 
that they just did not envision the kind of power uh, that the Supreme Court had. I mean, for example, um, think about the intrusion of the courts in just the last two years under the Trump administration into basic decisions on foreign policy, on immigration uh, that have been made by the executive branch, by the president with authority delegated to him by Congress. And yet you have federal judges all over the country, single federal judges in places like Washington State and California and elsewhere, um, basically second-guessing the president as if they're a super executive and issuing nationwide injunctions to to prevent him from being able to act. I, the, George Washington, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson could never have imagined something like that happening. Hmm. Well, I think um, those on the left have relied on our ignorance of what the intent was and have successfully been able to manipulate the courts into making decisions that they cannot successfully uh, achieve through the legislative uh, process. What do you think the outcome will be in terms of the American people perhaps better understanding the role of the court? Lawmakers, um, well, I've, I've already sort of asked you this question, lawmakers taking on uh, out of necessity uh, more of the legislative role that we're going to hear more persuasive arguments and efforts to influence the course of the nation? Well, I think the American public actually has probably its best understanding today of how important the court has become. We saw that um, in the 2016 election. Remember, Donald Trump made the Supreme Court and who would get to pick uh, the next justice on the court a key part of his campaign. And the, the polling um, both before and after the election, showed that this was, in fact, a major factor in the decisions made by uh, voters. That that's never happened. I don't think that's ever happened in our history. You know, the, the judiciary, the Supreme Court, has always been a very minor issue that voters don't don't think about. But I I, I believe that this shows how important they understand uh, how important it is that they understand um, what's going on with the federal courts and the Supreme Court. Now, one of the things we're hearing from more than a dozen um, House uh, lawmakers is that if they gain control of, and this is sort of a political question, but it has an impact on the Supreme Court, if they gain control of the House, that one of the things that they intend to do is impeach uh, Justice Kavanaugh. They'll continue to investigate and ultimately impeach. How uh, is that unprecedented? Is it possible? And can you just comment on this notion of impeaching a Supreme Court justice? Yeah, it's unprecedented, and while there's a lot of talk about it, I just don't think it's going to happen. And the reason for that is that um, our, our understanding of the impeachment process today, and this is based on what's happened over the past more than 200 years, is that impeachment is only used if someone is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. In other words, they have to be guilty of major crimes. There's only been, I think, about a dozen judges who've been in, impeached in our entire history and all of those were because those judges committed serious crimes. They were convicted of bribery and other things like that. Uh, there is no such uh, uh, conviction of any kind, no prosecution. There's, there's not really any real evidence of any crimes committed by uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh. In fact, the only basis really for this impeachment would be that they don't like his judicial philosophy. Mm -hmm. that, that, is, that is not a sufficient basis for impeachment, and I just don't think that's going to go anywhere. 
Well, it will be interesting to watch see these uh, next, well, this session of the Supreme Court that uh, Justice Kavanaugh joined yesterday. Thank you so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Anytime. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk with the stream's Rachel Alexander. Her column uh, focuses on a doctor- documentary that makes the case that Google and Facebook are manipulating society and manipulating you. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new documentary called The Creep Line, and it explores how Google and Facebook sell companies, political parties, and other groups what they know about us, what they know about you, so those enterprises can get us to do what they want. My next guest says that the tech giants are building a giant unconscious mind that will filter the world for us. Well, the new documentary reveals how the uh, your Google searches and Facebook news feed can bias your opinions without you knowing it. The Creepy Line is available on Amazon and Amazon Prime. It shows how these two companies manipulate search engines and news feeds and presents a serious threat to our democracy and elections. Joining us to talk about that is The Stream's Rachel Alexander. Always a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, I always appreciate coming on your show. Well, I have to tell you, the... Uh, the creep line is uh, certainly the right thing to call this. I, I have to admit that after researching for this documentary, I'm more creeped out by it than ever before. Uh, explain to our listeners what the creepy line uh, is about and what we need to be creeped out about. Well, it gets its name from former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, who said that um, when it comes to things like privacy and you know digging into u- users' information, Google goes right up to the creepy line but does not cross it. And this documentary basically tells you that's not true. Google does cross it and shows you how Google tracks you everywhere you go on the Internet. It sells your information to advertisers who then come and target ads at you. And Google does things like uh, bias search results. So if you're searching for a political candidate, you're going to get, you know, and, and this is a Hillary Clinton supporter who says this in the documentary, he said you're going to get more favorable results towards Hillary than you are Trump, and that does influence how people vote. Now, the film, as you point out, is not partisan. In fact, the foundational research of the film was conducted by Dr. Robert Epstein, who is a behavioral psychologist. He was a Hillary Clinton for president supporter. Uh, So this really goes beyond partisan politics. It it explains that both Google and Facebook started out with uh, great ideals, but it has morphed into something we need to be concerned about. Yeah. You know, they said that they started out, we just want to connect people to information. And, you know, they really did seem to do that. But what they uh, discovered was, you know, when you're doing things like search results, you have to pick what is relevant, what is more relevant than something else. And that is not objective. That is subjective. That's Google saying, you know, we're going to make this relevant. And, you know, one of the uh, examples that I went and did a screenshot in my article was where if you type in top races Republicans, because you're trying to find out what the top Republican races are, Google gives you a correction and says, did you mean top racist Republicans? And if somebody told me, um, if you do the same search for top races Democrats, it comes up with no such of a 
recommendation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what you do in your article that appeared in the stream is you sort of outline for us the evolution of how Google and Facebook have become more intrusive and reasons why we should be uh, more concerned about the kind of information they collect, how it's being used and how they're influencing our understanding of the world. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit of that? Yeah, well, Google is far beyond just a search engine. It, it did start by just tracking us through our searches. And then when it realized people were going directly to URLs, they weren't using its search engine, um, then they started their own browser, Chrome, and then they could track everything you did. And then they expanded into all these other apps. So we now have Gmail, we have Google Maps, we have all these extra apps, the Android operating system, you know, where they can track you and it's limitless. And, you know, you put things into Google search that you wouldn't tell your own spouse or your best friend. But Google knows all this about you. And I thought it was interesting that you point out that it never goes away. What they determine is uh, is of interest to you is connected to you pretty much forever. Yeah, they build these profiles of you that you can't get rid of. They're stored permanently forever, and you think you can go and delete your cookies well, they still have it saved back there somewhere about you. And there's nothing you can do to remove it. Like Google, you can't even contact its customer service because it doesn't have customer service. So you're talking about emails that were sent, emails that weren't sent. Whatever you do using this system is somehow, it somehow becomes a part of your profile. Yes, it's scary. Like if you don't send an email, but you just put it in draft and then you thought, oh my gosh, I sound like ridiculous. I better not send that. And you just leave it in draft. Google is monitoring those emails. I don't understand why anyone would use Gmail, you know, after hearing things like what happened to Podesta, um, how, you know, hackers got into his Gmail because everything's sitting out there on a server, you know. People need to learn to download your email every day. Do not leave it out there on a server where Google and anybody else can just read all those emails. Now, you write that they get away with it because most people don't want to believe that the data they collect is going to be used to manipulate them. They also get away with it because they give us things that we want. We need to be more savvy about uh, how these systems work. Talk a little bit about algorithms and how that's behind the system and how they're used, um, I would say, against us. Yeah, well, these algorithms are behind everything that goes on with Google. So if you do a search, there's an algorithm out there that will return certain things um, to you in that search. But you can tweak these algorithms. You can tweak these algorithms to, you know, turn up results that, you know, Republicans are fascists or, you know, Democrats are winning or, you know, they can tweak it however they want and we don't know. And like you said, um, we, we, we don't question this because we're getting something. We're getting something we think for nothing, but it's not for nothing. It's just not costing us in terms of dollars. You write that fake, fake news is being used as a weapon to discredit real news. But fortunately, we can see a fake news and recognize it. With a little discernment, it's not a, a real threat. The real threat is suppressing information and directing us elsewhere. It's invisible. And that's, that's part of the real challenge for us. Yeah, and, and, and Google is so smart how they do it. They give you this really clean home page. It looks so pretty, and there's nothing on it, so you think there's hardly anything going on. But that is their secret cover. You know, behind the scenes, they are just collecting massive amounts of information about us and using them and and manipulating us. Like, we don't know how much Google influences in the elections, but it's true that they showed more favorable results for Hillary Clinton during the election than they did Trump. 
It also influences politicians and business uh, businesses and so on. You write that not too long ago it came out that Facebook uh, tinkers with users' emotions. They perform psychological experiments on their users. Uh, they would show them more negative news than uh, than usual. It may have uh, driven people uh, to suicide. Can you talk a little bit about that and the fact that there's really no recourse? We're not citizens of Facebook. We can't vote on what the company does. And again, Google doesn't even have a customer service department. Yeah, I mean, when we use these products, you know, we agree to all their terms of service and their terms of service might be crazy. You know, it's like when you buy a house and you buy into a homeowners association, you might not like all the rules of the homeowners association, but by buying that house, you are subject to subjected to a lot of rules that you might really hate. So if you try to come at them later and sue them over, you know, something like this, over sending you negative news constantly over Facebook, they'll just say, well, you bought into it. And so where's our recourse? What do we do? You know, and maybe that's why Congress is starting to look into this a little bit. Yeah, you make the point that Google and Facebook uh, regularly lobby state legislatures against passing stronger privacy legislation. Google has street view vehicles that take photos of your home. Google offers its apps for free to schools, but they violate privacy laws by collecting information from children. They keep a very dangerous blacklist called the quarantine list. Uh, You give an example of a Dr. Jordan Peterson, a Canadian professor who appears in the uh, documentary documentary that we're referring to, uh, had his video censored on Google-owned YouTube, um, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, the the um, documentary really does help us better understand what's happening. Is there also a suggestion as to what we can do to un, um, unconnect ourselves from this, uh, uh, this big machine, if you will? Well, a couple of the people in the documentary did say we need serious competition, and the problem is right now, all these other competitive products out there, they don't have enough money to compete with the big boys. And so that's going to be one realistic alternative. They didn't really call for like a government solution or anything like that, because I think it is, you know, ultimately more of a free market approach. Yes. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I think is going to have to happen. We need some better competitors. One of the points that the documentary makes is it compares what Google and Facebook are doing to 1930s fascism in Italy. There, the government fused with large corporations, uh, yet now it's even more cleverly done. Uh, there's some serious considerations to be made if we better understand what Google and you and um, uh, Facebook are doing so that we can make informed decisions about whether or not we want to play the game. Yeah, we just have to pay more attention, and people don't because they're like, oh, it's something for free, and I'm so busy, I don't have time. But this movie is a really good way to get informed. I, I you know, am always on top of privacy issues when it comes to Google and Facebook, and I didn't even know a lot that was in this documentary. So if you have Amazon or Amazon Prime, I highly recommend you watch it. Again, The Creepy Line is the name of it. I have uh, uh, the, the Prime, and I'm definitely going to be watching this. Just reading your article, I became far more concerned than I'd ever been about how all of this works. And I so appreciate your uh, drawing our attention to this important issue and for talking with me here today. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Rachel Alexander writing for The Stream. Uh, Her article appeared um, on the 10th. Is that today? Is today the 10th? Uh, Anyway, the creepy line, how Google and Facebook manipulate society. Uh, A must read and if possible, uh, must see if you're concerned about how Uh, These two entities are influencing us and the world around us.
All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. When we return, we're going to hear from Wayne Grudem. He is the, uh, the author of Christian Ethics, and in, uh, Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, Democrats are planning to force a vote in the Senate this week on overturning the Trump administration rule that would expand or allow for the expansion of non-Obamacare insurance plans. Well, the resolution, which would likely get a vote, uh, well, if not today, tomorrow, would overturn a rule that finalized in August that expanded the availability of short-term health insurance plans. Well, Democrats say that the plans, uh, they would describe it rather as junk insurance because um, uh, they say it doesn't need to uh, cover pre-existing conditions or follow other Obamacare rules. Now, it's, an, it's one of many options. If you don't have pre-existing conditions, you might choose this because the cost is lower. Republicans argue the plan provides a cheaper option alongside Obamacare plans. But the resolution, which is supported by all 49 Senate Democrats, is unlikely to pass, given that it would uh, need 51 votes, although GOP senators, um, or Senator Lisa Murkowski, who broke with the party on uh, health care last year, um, hasn't publicly said how she's going to vote. And there's one other whose name is escaping me at this moment. Well, even a failed vote, however, would allow Democrats to hammer Republicans on the issue of pre-existing conditions, which they've made central to their campaign ahead of next month's midterm elections. And particularly on the Democrat side, health care is a big issue. Uh, not mentioned as much on the Republican side, but may uh, be more of a major issue than uh, one might imagine. Well, Democrats point out that the short-term health insurance plans can deny people who have pre existing conditions. Well, the rule in question finalized by the Trump administration back in August lifts restrictions that limited short-term plans to a duration of three months. Well, under the new rules, short-term plans can last up to a year, which critics say uh, makes them not actually short-term at all. Well, Senator uh, Tammy Baldwin, who's uh, up for re-election this year, is the main sponsor of that resolution. And sometime today, she says they're voting to overturn these junk plans. She says she's eager to see whether Republicans want to support these junk plans. And again, that's what the Democrats have, have uh, labeled them and stick with uh, Trump. Or do they want to support their constituents? I think they stick with Trump. Well, Again, we're less than 30 days away from the midterm elections, and so this sort of thing is very useful. Uh, Whether or not you're driven by your convictions politically, these kinds of issues can be very useful. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, who promised, uh, made uh, their way into the majority in both the House and the Senate on the promise that they would overturn Obamacare, uh, have a tougher time of communicating with their constituents as to why that promise was not kept and these small incremental steps, whether or not they are sufficient uh, with the promise that ultimately the uh, uh, the health care plan will be overturned may or may not be sufficient. And that depends um, on uh, whether or not uh, Republican voters are patient. And if they believe that ultimately the Republican lawmakers will keep their uh, promise. Well, the Trump administration has asked the Supreme Court to block a deposition of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who approved adding the citizenship question to the 2020 census. Now, we haven't heard a lot about this, but this census citizenship question, uh, there's a lawsuit. It's moving toward the Supreme Court showdown. Well, the Trump administration has asked the Supreme Court to block the deposition of Commerce Secretary Ross. He approved that uh, citizenship question on the uh, upcoming census. And again, that's 2020. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has temporarily blocked lower court orders for depositions by two senior Trump administration officials in the multiple lawsuit uh, that uh, over the new question about U.S. citizen status 
on the 2020 census. Now, the issue is whether or not the question should be asked, and it's one question on the census among many dozens of other questions, are you a U.S. citizen? Now, some suggest this would uh, uh, prevent the census from actually reflecting who's here. People would be reluctant to answer that question, believing that it could ultimately uh, come back to bite them, so to speak. But the ruling comes after U.S. Solicitor General Noel Francisco filed a request uh, last night for the high court to permanently block the court ordered depositions by the Commerce Secretary Ross and the Justice Department official uh, John Gore, as well as requests for internal documents. Well, after the lawsuit's plaintiffs file a reply to the administration's request by 4 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow, Justice Ginsburg can either make a ruling herself or refer the request to the full Supreme Court. Well, the Trump administration's request to the high court comes uh, amid a last minute scramble by its attorneys to stop Ross and Gore from having to sit for a questioning under oath in the two lead lawsuits in New York. Evidence gathering for the two lawsuits is set uh, for the end of this week. Well, all of this legal back and forth is building up to the start of the first potential trial over the citizenship question, which is set to begin on November 5th, the day before the midterm elections at the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Lawyers for the dozens of states, cities and organizations suing the Trump administration. They were set to question the uh, question Gore on Wednesday and Ross on Thursday. Ross approved adding the citizenship question to the census as the head of the Commerce Department, which oversees the Census Bureau. Gore, he leads the Justice Department Civil Rights Division that, the administration argues, needs responses to the citizenship question to better enforce the Voting Rights Act protections against discrimination of racial and language minorities. Well, earlier on uh, Tuesday, a three-judge panel of the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals rejected the Trump administration's effort to stop the deposition of Mr. Ross, which the judges kept temporarily on hold to allow either the administration or the lawsuit's plaintiffs to seek relief from the Supreme Court, according to their order. Well, the Second Circuit ordered on Tuesday uh, upholds an earlier ruling by the district judge, Jesse Furman, who wrote, Secretary Ross must sit for a deposition because, among other things, his intent and credibility are directly at issue in these cases. The administration's attorney, however, argued that Furman should uh, base his ruling on the case on the internal documents the administration has already released as part of the lawsuit. Well, last week, Ginsburg uh, turned down the administration's previous request for the high court to temporarily stop the depositions and document uh, requests for the lawsuit, but left the door open for the administration to ask the court to permanently block them. Ross has uh, said he added the uh, question so that the Justice Department can use the citizenship information to better enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But the plaintiffs say the federal government does not need the 2020 census to to collect citizenship data to enforce Section 2 of that act. Since the law was enacted, in 1965, the government has relied on estimates of voting age citizens from a Census Bureau survey now known as the American Community Survey. More than two dozen states and cities, plus other groups, they filed suit to get the citizenship question removed from the forms of the upcoming national headcount. Citing Census Bureau research, they worry that asking about citizenship status in the current political climate will discourage households with non-citizens from participating in the census. That, in turn, would harm the accuracy of the information collected for the constitutionally mandated headcount of every person living in the U.S. Well, in their complaints, the plaintiffs say that 
Ross' decision, Ross's decision to add the question was a misuse of his discretion over the census as the head of the Commerce Department. They also allege that the Trump administration's push for the question discriminated against immigrant communities of color. Now, I suppose you could narrow that by suggesting it would only discriminate against immigrant communities of color who are in the country illegally. Well, the Census Bureau has not asked all households in the country about citizenship status since 1950, but it has been done. Well, Democrats in both the Senate and the House, uh, they've been calling for Ross to return to Capitol Hill to testify about the uh, question after internal memos and emails released as part of the lawsuit contradicted a timeline that he described in past testimony. Well, before announcing the addition of the citizen question in March, Ross told lawmakers that the Justice Department initiated the request for the question, asked whether the White House directed him to add the citizenship question. Ross said during a House hearing, we are responding solely to the Department of Justice request. Well, in June, however, Ross disclosed in a memo filed as part of the lawsuit that he began considering adding the question to the 2020 census soon after he took over the Commerce Department in February of 2017. The Justice Department sent its formal request to the Census Bureau later that year in December Ross also noted that other senior administration officials had previously raised the issue of a citizenship question. So the back and forth continues, and we'll see what the census actually ultimately has to say. Well, we've learned that marijuana use may pose a greater risk to the developing brains of teenagers than alcohol consumption. That's according to a new study this week. The analysis published on Wednesday in the American Journal of Psychiatry found that cannabis had greater short and long term consequences than alcohol on four key components of teenagers memory. The finding uh, greatly surprised researchers. We initially suspected alcohol would have a bigger effect, said Patricia Conrad, a lead author and professor of psychiatry at the University of Montreal, speaking to USA Today. Researchers looked at four cognitive functions, problem solving, long term memory, short term memory, manipulation and the ability to stop a habitual behavior when needed. Well, marijuana had significant ne- negative impacts on all four, while the study could not tie alcohol to negative effects. However, the alcohol's effects may be greater as teens drink more later in life, Conrad went on to say. The authors estimate nearly 4,000 students in the Montreal region over four years, starting when the average participant was just 13. Students took yearly memory tests and self-reported their alcohol and marijuana use. Those reports were kept confidential unless such information indicated imminent risk of harm. By the fourth year, three quarters of the students had consumed alcohol at least occasionally, while only 30 percent of participants had used marijuana. But the study observed more daily marijuana users than alcohol users. Uh, The study uh, points out um, the study found some of marijuana's negative effects were short term while others were lasting. A particularly troubling finding, young cannabis users may cause long term damage to a brain function associated with substance abuse. When studying response inhibition, that's an individual ability to change their actions to help meet a goal. Researchers found that teens using marijuana cause long-term damage to their brains. Conrad said that finding may help explain a previously perplexing phenomenon. Young cannabis users have been shown to be at a greater risk for accident later in, or rather addiction later in life. Again, that study released earlier today. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, evangelicals in the United Kingdom secured a major legal victory for freedom of conscience today. The nation's Supreme Court ruled on behalf of a Christian bakery that declined to fulfill an order for a pro-gay cake. Well, the High Court, again, we're talking about the UK, declared that the owners of Asher's Baking Company in Belfast, Northern Ireland, could not be compelled to promote a message that went against their beliefs. In this case, a Bert and Ernie cake celebrating the International Day against homophobia. Well, the bakers could not refuse to supply their goods to customers and LGBT activists, Mr. Lee, because he was a gay man or supported gay marriage. But that is quite different from obliging them to supply a cake iced with a message with which they profoundly disagree. That's the Supreme Court President Lady Hale delivering the opinion in the unanimous 5-0 ruling. Well, the court's reasoning resembled the defense made for Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Christian-owned bakery in Colorado that famously won the U.S. Supreme Court last June over its refusal to bake cakes for same-sex weddings. Uh, The Masterpiece Cake Shop victory hinged on the state's biased enforcement of religious freedom accommodations and ended up being a narrow uh, ruling than uh, its uh, Christian supporters had hoped for without universally granting broader protections for compelled speech. In contrast, the U.K. decision is being celebrated as a bigger victory. The key outcome of today's ruling, says uh, U.K. Evangelical Alliance, is that no one can be compelled to say anything that they profoundly disagree with. Uh, The ruling defended the bakers' protections under the European Convention on Human Rights, saying obliging a person to manifest a belief with which he does not hold has been uh, held to be a limitation on his Article 9 rights, freedom of religion or belief, and the freedom not to be obliged to hold a man, hold rather, or manifest beliefs that one does not hold is also protected by the Article 10 of the Convention, freedom of expression. The court found that there was no discrimination on the grounds of religious belief or political opinion and ultimately concluded that uh, the compelled speech would not have been justified in this case. Peter uh, Linus, the director of the Evangelical Alliance Northern Ireland, noting that all charges of discrimination lodged against Asher's owner, Daniel and Amy MacArthur, had been dismissed. Our hope and our prayer is that everyone in Northern Ireland is treated fairly and justly, he said. This judgment is an important step in that direction. So an interesting case in um, in Ireland. Uh, interestingly enough, in the Masterpiece case here, there has been another charge brought against the uh, the baker in that case. Very similar to what we had seen before, and it seems that there's an effort to force the Supreme Court's hand once again to perhaps consider other elements of this decision, uh, of its decision, and the practice that um, the uh, owner of the cake shop has declined to undertake. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, is suspected of killing more than 90 women between 1982 and the early 90s. H.H. Holmes used to be considered America's most prolific serial killer. He is said to have murdered 230 victims during the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Both are dwarfed by a killer whose victims began disappearing in the 1980s. For years, his murders went largely unnoticed. Then in 2010, the Philadelphia Police Drug Enforcement Administration and Federal Bureau of Investigation raided his place of business. They were looking for evidence of an illegal drug operation. What they found was an office filled with corpses, more than 30 of them. They also found evidence of hundreds, perhaps thousands more. For instance, an industrial strength garbage disposal had been completely worn out. Evidently, it was used to grind up bodies for disposal into the Philadelphia sewer system. A waste disposal company had unknowingly hauled off countless more for incineration. Still others had been taken to the killer's vacation home and used as bait in his crab cages. 
Well, the principle of um, corpus delecti requires that prosecutors have evidence of a body to prove murder. Because of this killer's effective disposal of the remains, however, we will never really know the final count. The sheer volume of his crimes was too physically taxing to perform alone, so he hired assistants. They helped bring victims into the office and dispose of the evidence. Some even performed murders on his behalf, but they were not prosecuted. Eyewitnesses could testify of what they had done, but proving intent would be more difficult. The serial killer had trained girls as young as 15 years old in his own private medical school. There he taught as a legitimate medical procedure what anyone else would have recognized as murder in cold blood. The name of America's most prolific serial killer is Kermit Gosnell. He avoided the death penalty by waiving his right to appeal and is serving life without parole. His story is now being told in the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. It opens nationwide this Friday in theaters, October the 12th. It is a riveting story on several levels, perhaps Uppermost is the question, how was he able to perform so many murders without getting caught? He had numerous witnesses with evidence literally piled up in the hallways, stored in freezers and refrigerators. How could all of this go unnoticed for decades? Well, the answer, he was hiding his murders in plain sight. This was possible because they took place in an abortion facility, giving him an almost impenetrable layer of protection. Nobody wants to scrutinize abortion facilities or think too carefully about them. They have become sacrosanct so that they they very mention freezes uh, observers in place. Now, consider your reaction um, to all of this as a prosecutor and investigator discovering what happened. Now, Gosnell's filmmaker says he didn't care about abortion until he saw the victims in this particular case. Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer, is the true crime movie about how Philadelphia detective James Wood and his partner, Detective Stark, bust Dr. Kermit Gosnell for selling prescription drugs illegally only to discover that he was, in fact, and is a murderer. In their joint raid of his office with the FBI and the DEA, they entered into the stench of death and find that he is an abortionist who keeps uh, the product of his uh, work in the lunchroom refrigerator. U.S. Uh, Abortion restrictions are weak, but uh, it is a federal crime to murder babies who survive abortion attempts. And Woods thinks Gosnell delivered some of the little victims alive and then ended their lives. Well, I won't go into any further details. I've really gone back and forth uh, over whether or not I'm interested in seeing this film because of the gruesome nature of it. But I do hope that like the filmmaker who cared little about abortion until learning about this case, Uh, that others who do see the film um, will, in fact, become convinced of the horror of this practice, not just of this one individual, uh, individual, but what abortion actually does hundreds of thousands of times a day across the country and certainly around the world. That movie opens in theaters this uh, Friday, if you have the stomach to watch it. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Ray Rhodes, Jr. He is the author of Susie, the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, wife of Charles Spurgeon. Looking forward to that conversation because it focuses on individuals whose names are lesser known, but whose contribution to the kingdom and to the body of Christ and culture in general far exceeds their um, anonymity. So we're looking forward to that. And then on Friday, we're planning on taking a look at the lighter side of the news and hope you will join us as well. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.